Speakeasy by Fyodor Kuzmichev in Standard, Issue 5. It's a well-known trope that bartenders have half a novel under their belts, but the gentle art of cocktail making can slake the creative propensities of many a germinating artist. Fyodor Kuzmichev certainly thinks so, and has seen fit to craft a delicately wrought description of his ventures into the endeavor and subsequent Dantean exploration of the cocktail underworld. Having been brought up with the utmost vim and vigor in my appreciation for the visual arts, I began my creative attempts rather early in life. However, be it for a lack of talent or an unfortunate discrepancy between my aspirations and the harsh methodological reality, I never became even modestly good at drawing. Nor, for that matter, did any other pictorial endeavor yield to my clumsy efforts. Attempts that were insufficient were usually abandoned halfway, leaving me with disfigured paper sheets that accumulated a disheveled mess in the bottom drawer of a time-honored desk, the irrevocable center of gravity around which the contents of my bleak, cramped room were arranged. Years went by, and my mound of failures swelled, steadily commandeering other drawers. Sometimes, I would turn to that quaking mass and pour over the pages with desperate fury in the hope of finding a mustard seed of talent among the vestiges of drafts, only to be left, time and again, with a poignant sense of remorse at my inadequacy. When, in due course, I moved out of the ancestral home where the brightest of my ideas had turned to dust, I took the desk with me to my new abode, having found nowhere to dispose of it. Although I had since given up any original artistic pursuit, and had come to regard myself as a mere onlooker of art objects, the paper demons lurking in those drawers, in the corner, under the linen sheet, somehow kept alive the final remnants of my unquenched urge for artistic self-realization. That urge did not gnaw at me for long, however. I had lately taken refuge in a form of creative work which, while clad in a guise less refined than pure art, seemed to me just as stimulating and rewarding. There may have been several avenues in which my creative impulses might have been able to roam unfettered, but by far the most festive and effervescent of them is the art of cocktail making. The bringing together of diverse ingredients and watching them change color, structure, and taste while closely observing measures, combinations, and preferences combines both the artistic sublimity of drawing and the mechanical and tactile process of cooking and provides just as much pleasure and opportunity for creativity. The process emanates an incomparable joy through the unification of dissimilar elements and represents a humble take on those demiurgic amusements that have lurked in human nature since primordial times. As in alchemy, the doing aims to satisfy material needs only on the surface. The more fundamental raison d'etre lies in the exaltation of spirit and the endless search for the perfect formula. Neat beverages bring with them a confinement of hierarchy, their names being a given fact. Cocktails, while affording one sanctuary from the oppressively manifested taste of neat beverages, allows for a felicitous union of culinary and literary creativity in their naming. By giving a name to a newly concocted cocktail, one contributes to its character, applies a finishing flourish to the tippling ritual, and creates a cognitive prelude to the sampling of taste. I've been known to haunt a certain bar and indulge in its speciality, a cocktail called a little whim, which, among other things, imperatively contains a mighty drop of absinthe, and unsurprisingly, hits like a hammer. While the standard incarnation of this drink is possessed of a light pomegranate juice base, a more adventurous affair substitutes champagne and can put to test even the sturdiest of seasoned boozers. But, however hard a blow the mixture strikes, it invariably encompasses a certain tint of delicacy and gentleness that can be attributed not only to the sweetened flavor, but also to its handle. 
And so the magic of neologism was mine to steer when I set to work on creating a cocktail named a trilobite. A splendidly refreshing shot, which, if not for the rarity of the crucial ingredient, would enkindle many a friendly gathering. The elements constituting trilobite are strong homemade berry infusion, cherry juice, a drop of grenadine, and a sip of cream liquor to generate a misty cloud within the blood-colored contents of the shot. One might expect trilobite to be a trio, but the cream kernel, petrified in transparent ichor, reminded me so vividly of a primordial creature encased in amber, so enchanting, so rare. The drink was redolent with berry aromas and tasted like the most refined flower mead, while being strong enough to impart the strength of the shot. The outlandish sensation promised by its name remained for a long stretch and persistently called for repeat. To compound an exquisite taste and coin an appropriate name for it, what a worthy challenge, what a noble mission. Sooner or later, a cocktail aficionado inevitably defines from themselves a set of mixtures ideally tailored to their taste and constitution. They may either settle down to something more or less conventional. The choice of classical ingredients and recipes has the obvious advantage of being easily procurable, or opt for paths less trodden, in which case the air of exclusiveness is exchanged for precariousness. But before the die is cast, one has no right to deprive oneself of a series of glorious experiments. One owes it to oneself to let the magic into its full extent. As with any art, one must seek out the work of one's peers and expose oneself to the fruits of collective labor. Writers must read other great writers, painters must study those who came before, and we cocktail braves must behave in a like manner. I hasten to find others that shared my affinity, my brothers in craft. If I were to explore this avenue to the fullest, my quest for perfection could not only assume a form of self-absorbed critical degustation, but also necessitated a tour of watering holes, the visitation of all manner of drinking establishment. I was looking for a safe haven, where one needn't be wary of unbidden confessions or inquisitive questioning from bucolic fellow patrons, but instead find refined repose and a unity of taste and outlook, not necessarily expressed by loquaciousness, but rather the dignity of understanding silences. Just as legendary knights of yore would travel from one land to another in search of a worthy adversary, a barfly dissatisfied with his current surroundings will seek a drink, a place, and companionship that will cast the light of supreme reason on all things. It was upon a journey of this kind that I embarked, fleeing from wilting enthusiasm, stilted conversation, and an inexorably deteriorating quality of booze. I was preparing to plunge into the uncharted waters of speakeasy bars, about which there existed, among my acquaintances, a scrappy heap of intriguing tales about these places, teeming with ambiguous praise concerning both the quality of drinks and the oddity of ambience. I set out on my tour one evening, early in spring. My first guide mark was situated in a respectable quarter, but proved elusive, and a sickening feeling of surrender mounted in my chest, bringing with it the memory of having once, well before I even learned the term speakeasy, almost managed to enter one. Having been told a password beforehand, I smugly enunciated it to the doorman, only to be met with a contemptuous grimace instead of the expected welcoming smile. Flabbergasted, I stared in silent scrutiny at the guard, who drawlingly informed that in order to be let in, I had to be dressed in black, and that additionally, my password has long since expired. I could do nothing but turn back, my adventurous flame extinguished. Angry in part at my informant's fraudulence and in full at my own foolishness, I swore to myself never to engage with any kind of face control again. But now that seemed all far away, and besides, at this point, there was no going back. 
The metro station lay far away on the other side of a torturous stony labyrinth, and summoning a taxi seemed quite unworthy of my heroic quest. No, my deliverance was waiting for me, in the form of a glowing concoction of spirits and the congenial atmosphere of a speakeasy. I braced myself for a decisive onslaught. It was long after all the filthiest words in my vocabulary were recalled to memory and reiterated that I finally reached a bleak courtyard where a tiny solitary booth had a plaque with a coveted word on it, and long descending stairs hidden behind the door gave access to a shadowy room. I entered an unfathomably ill-lit space with dense layers of smoke cutting through it, walls covered with tapestry-like black wallpaper, its lustreless surface penetrated here and there by vintage pin-up gas lamps and thick golden chains fettering the legs of the squat, dark wooden tables. On each side of the counter lay a pair of massive golden skulls, completing the theatrical effect and unambiguously inviting guests to behave. There was hardly a need for that strong an incentive, since the clients, leisurely and forlornly reclined in their easy chairs, looked sated and stolid, with hookah and beverages to hand. The general spiritus loci recalled a Victorian-era opium den, but aside from gaudy paraphernalia, there was no alluring mystery to speak of. The sounds were muffled, the voices few and weak, the booze royally strong, but lacking both inspiration and flamboyancy. Service proved to be efficient, yet completely impersonal. The place was good enough for me to get stone drunk on my own, but was it really the greener pastures I was so desperately seeking? There was no company for me here, no cheer, nothing remotely amusing. If I was to have an undiluted speakeasy experience, I had to move on. The next place of attraction was located in the most vicious of central districts, under the cover of a sleazy fast food joint. The curtained entrance, which was to be found at the back of the host's store, was guarded by a massive fellow in typical bouncer attire. His prominent jaw emitted hostility, but his words weren't nearly as intimidating. And after stoutly answering a number of testing questions, I learned that a party of sorts was being held, which I was welcome to join at my own risk and peril. In evidence of the guard's words, some indistinct and menacing reverberations of electronic music could be heard. Was I desperate enough for that sort of frenzy? One point in my itinerary still remained unchecked, and I decided to give it a try first, leaving the loud party as a last resort. The guiding forces of Speakeasy at last provided me with respite, since the next place turned out to be absurdly easy to find. I plucked up my courage, descended a long flight of stairs leading to a narrow, badly lit passage with metallic doors that were uninvitingly closed. Behind one of them, I found a small, dark room, which was striving to accommodate a massive bar counter. In light of the non-existence of a menu, the bartender asked me straight away what I was having. I wasn't in the mood to ease his life with a hackneyed choice, but to my vague and unpronounced demands, he reacted with extraordinary perceptiveness. The very first cocktail he handed me was, in all probability, the best I'd ever tasted. It was a Negroni, with Campari served separately in the form of a spoonful of delicious, spicy sorbet. After the first appreciative gulp, I started looking around. Near me at the corner sat two reasonably disheveled individuals whose confused conversation was centered around an old dandy camera, which sat as an object of admiration between their glasses. Sipping the whiskey-colored cocktail and taking an occasional bite of the mound of ambrosial sorbet, I fell into a peaceful unawareness of things around me. Suddenly, the words of one of the camera fellows, whose voice was strident with drink, startled me. I'd have never become a photographer, if not for my inability to paint. In my accustomed sheepish manner, I averted my head so that no one could see my contented grin. 